We are continuing in our sermon series, Born the King Has Come, looking at the wondrous Christmas story as it is told to us by the Gospel writer Matthew. Now, we're going to be looking at what is probably the most famous gift-giving story ever written. Of course, I'm speaking of the visit of the Magi to the Christ child. I think it's appropriate that uh, we look at this story right now because I suspect that many of us are on the gift-giving track at this moment, on the frenzied hunt to try to find those gifts or that gift that is just perfect for our loved ones. This year has been a little bit unlike any other year we've experienced for gift-giving, given the store restrictions and the online purchasing and so on. But nevertheless, some things never change. And so off we go, madly searching for just the right thing to buy for that special someone. And here at Emmanuel, we always want to be uh, helpful in any way that we can. So to that end, I want to begin by sharing with you some of the things that you can forget about buying. This might just shorten your list a little bit. Uh, The new Atlas digital newsletter ran an article uh, several years ago called The Top 10 Things You Can't Have for Christmas. And here are some of the things that you can probably cross off your shopping list. The first one, a genuine Lamborghini bicycle. This unit rolls along on two carbon fiber rims, and it will set you back about $33,000. You might have that kind of cash, but... They only made 30 of these, so good luck in finding one of them. How about the Hublot Big Bang Watch? This timepiece features a white gold case studded with about 1,200 grade A diamonds that it took 17 jewelers working full-time for seven months to put into place. It's a mere $5 million, but... It does have a self-winding feature, so you won't have to worry about continually winding the thing. Ever wished you could get out on the water? How about owning your own personal island? The Orsos Island is about 20 meters wide and 37 meters long. So that's small as islands go, but it can be yours for a paltry 4.5 million. Now, back a few years ago, this was just an idea, but I think you can actually get this next one now. Uh, The flying car gives you the ability to drive on the road or fly in a two-person gyrocopter capable of speeds of about 200 kilometers an hour. These cars actually exist today, but you may have some trouble buying one because the aviation industry hasn't figured out how to get them flying safely yet in the airspace. And then finally, for the music lover in your family, there's the iNuke Boom Dock. It's a speaker that will hook up to your iPhone. It's only eight feet wide and four feet high, runs on about 10,000 watts, and it can go loud enough to break glass. It would look great in your living room, but you're going to have to get a crane to move it in because it weighs about 700 pounds. Well, maybe that shortened your list a little bit. I know it shortened mine. But uh, there are some people that uh, perhaps buying these things is still an option. 
maybe for those people who are particularly difficult to buy for. Nevertheless, uh, it does kind of beg the question, what is it that we might bring to God this Christmas? Christmas is a time when we offer presents to express our love to others. And in the spirit of giving, surely we want to offer something to God as an expression of our love for Him. And you might say, well, why would I do that? It's not like God is going to uh, take a present from under the tree and unwrap it on Christmas morning. And in one sense, God doesn't really need anything anyway. What could we give him that he doesn't already have? The psalmist said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's in Psalm 24, verse 1. As the creator and the sustainer of the universe, everything ultimately belongs to God and is part of his creation. And so he really lacks for nothing. But while he may not need anything, there are certain gifts that he longs to receive from us. These are gifts that we must choose to give him because, after all, a gift isn't really a gift if it's forced. And when we give these things to him, he rejoices. And when we withhold them from him, he is deeply saddened. You might even say, Christmas is not really Christmas until we have presented these gifts to him. I think we can see what these gifts are in the actions of the wise men, those who were among the first to come and offer gifts to the Christ child. Turn into your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We want to read this account, and as we look at it, I think we can examine the nature and the meaning of the kinds of things Jesus is looking for from us this Christmas. So let's start reading in Matthew chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
And the identity of the wise men is uncertain. We know that they came from the east. Some have suggested that they came from an area inhabited by the Medes and the Persians. Others have thought that they've come from the Chaldeans or perhaps they were Babylonian because those nations are mentioned in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2. At any rate, these wise men seem to have come from a people who had some skill in studying the stars. Furthermore, it's probably a safe bet that these various nations would have received Jewish populations throughout their history. And so it's very likely that these Jews would have communicated to the Magi their belief in the one God and their expectation of a coming Messiah. Now, they do seem to regard the one they seek as a king. This can be seen in their first gift, namely gold. Some would believe that these gifts are simply treasures, expensive items that really don't have any greater significance than that. But the wise men, I think, seem to be privy to, privy to God's revelation in a miraculous way. And even if they don't fully understand the significance of the gifts, it's fair to say in hindsight that the gifts could not have been more appropriate. For example, gold is a gift fit for a king. Gold is often mentioned in Scripture as being associated with royalty. Joseph wore a gold neck chain as he was vice-regent in Egypt. King Nebuchadnezzar is represented by a head of gold in Daniel. And many rulers are described as owning gold. King Solomon has his wealth described in 1 Kings chapter 10. And in the space of just seven verses, uh, gold is mentioned ten times. So gold is associated with royalty and with kingship. And there's no doubt that in God's divine plan, this child would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what amazes me is not so much the gift, but the spirit behind it. In this gift of gold, we can recognize in the heart of the wise men a devotion which seems unparalleled in Judah. These men seem filled with a devotion that prompts them to receive guidance from God, travel far and wide just to bow down before a child they have never seen before and to give him treasures fit for a king. Is there anything in your life that moves you to that kind of action? I think if you look hard enough, you'll probably find something. What do workaholics, Barbie collectors, dedicated sports fans, dog show regulars, movie star club presidents, diehard exercise nuts, and internet fanatics all have in common? Well, they're all looking for something bigger than they are something that they can pursue and admire. And when they find it, they go to incredible lengths in their devotion to pursue it. We all do that. It's kind of the way that we are wired. We all give our devotion to something. Dostoevsky once said, so long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. And here we begin to get a sense of the kind of gifts that Jesus is looking for. This Christmas, 
Jesus longs to receive from us the gift of our devotion. What devotion will Jesus see in us this year? Will he find us thrilling in hockey or our bank account or our significant other or some hobby or some work? Will he see us distracted by such things or will he find a heart that is truly devoted to him, seeking him out and desiring him above all else to honor him with whatever we might have to give? This is the first gift that Jesus seeks from us. The decision to say no to the world's attractions and the decision to give our devotion to the king. Well, now as we think about a second gift for Jesus, we need to see that many of the details of the wise men that we read about are often left unanswered. Were there actually three Well, the text doesn't actually say there were three gifts, but that doesn't mean that there were only three wise men. Were they actually kings? There are some references in the Old Testament to kings worshiping. Psalm 72 verse 10 seems to talk about that, but it doesn't actually say that they're worshiping at the time of Christ's birth. Where did they come from exactly? Well, we don't really know that either. They came from the east, but we're not exactly sure where they originated. Some traditions have one coming from India, one from Egypt, another from Greece. But these are all just conjecture. There's not even an assurance that the star led them all the way to Bethlehem. All we technically read in the text is that they saw the star rising in the east And then later on, the star reappears and leads them to where the child is. Even the timing of their journey is a bit fuzzy. What we need to see through all of this is that the poverty of information is actually deliberate. The point here is not the nature of the star or who the wise men were or where they came from or any of that. The focus is on the fact that they came to worship the baby. There's a call here to Jew and Gentile alike to bow before the child and to give him our praise and our adoration. This is not the reaction of Herod, the other central figure in this account. Herod apparently learns uh, about the presence of the Magi I don't doubt that the Magi were moving around the area asking where the Christ child might be and likely word got back to Herod that there were strangers in town looking for him. And so he later calls for them to come speak to them. And the word used to describe Herod's initial reaction in hearing about all this is a pretty strong one. It literally means to shake up or to stir to trouble or to agitate. In other words, Herod is frightened. He's terrified at the news of this child. Why would he be so scared? This is really surprising considering the kind of man that Herod was. Herod was certainly the most powerful man in the region. He had been given an army to command. As pictured by Josephus, the historian, in his writings, Herod was capable He was crafty and he was cruel. He was efficient in the collection of tribute. He could practice 
very subtle diplomacy. He was a great builder. He built a theater and an amphitheater and a hippodrome and a luxurious palace for himself. He was an opportunist. He knew how to take advantage of the moment. There was even one instance where he sold furniture from his palace uh, in order to provide funds to help meet a famine in the land. So there were some real leadership gifts that he possessed. But Herod was also ruthless. By the time we read of this event, he's probably about 70 years old, having been in power for about 40 years, which is no small feat in a place like Palestine. And he's held on to power with great cruelty, at times killing even his own wives and children in order to do it. Herod was, in every sense of the word, a self-made man. So why would he be terrified because of a little baby? Well, I think what he feared the most was the collapse of his world. He sees in the arrival of the baby someone that the Jews will rally around as their new king. All that he has worked for could come crashing down. His empire, his power, his control. And so Herod decides that he needs to act in order to put an end to this threat. I don't think it's that hard for us to understand Herod's reaction. We all react in a similar way at times. When something threatens our world, we can be prone to panic and we revert back to our own strength to fix the situation, to preserve what we have created or gathered for ourselves. But as normal as this reaction might be, it betrays a subtle choice that we have made. We've chosen to trust in ourselves and to live for ourselves. The king we have functionally chosen to worship is us. This is the sin of pride. This was Herod's great error. He came to depend upon himself and to live for himself, to believe that he could manage any situation and ignore God in the process as he constructed his own world around him. He forgot that without God, he is nothing. One man has written that pride is actually an amnesia of the soul. And when we choose to rely on ourselves, we forget that in our own self-sufficiency, we are helpless. We are nothing without God. Praise is really the antidote for pride. When self-sufficiency looms on the horizon, God's prescription is praise. Let's look at the Israelites. Just as they were about to enter the promised land, they stood before a great land that promised them a, a comfortable lifestyle and fertile lands and, and really the good life. And just as they're about to enter, God gives them a warning. We read about it in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8. Listen to what God says. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valley and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. And then a little bit later he says, 
be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God. The Magi model for us the attitude that we must have and the choice we must make in approaching the Christ child. Rather than see Jesus as a potential threat to our own kingdom, the way Herod looked at him, we need to reject our tendency to be proud and self-sufficient and instead come humbly to him to praise him as our Savior and Lord. And such an attitude is suggested in the gift of frankincense. Frankincense, or incense in general, is usually referred to in the Old Testament and the New in connection with the service of God. In offering incense, burning coals would be taken from an altar of burnt offering and placed on an altar of incense. And the incense would be sprinkled on the coals and the fragrant smoke would rise heavenward, symbolic of the prayers and thanksgiving of the people. So it would seem that the wise men approached the child in an attitude of worship and praise. It begs the question, have we come to this season to praise the child? Will we be taking time to praise him as we sit around our table this year and enjoy the feast and all his blessing? Or, in self-sufficiency and pride, will we tend to see God as a threat to ourselves and our self-made kingdoms, or will we forget him entirely? This is the second gift that Jesus seeks from us, the rejection of pride in ourselves and the decision to offer praise to the child. Well, we have one more offering from the Magi to consider, and it is maybe the most puzzling. The gift of myrrh in Scripture is associated with mankind. It was used as perfume, but it was also used as an anesthetic mixed with wine and traditionally used to prepare a body for burial. Now, what could a gift like that have to do with a baby? Well, it has everything to do with this baby. With the benefit of hindsight, we can say that this child was born to die. We all will die, but this child's death carries with it an eternal significance. With the death of Christ some 30 years later, the way was prepared for you and for I to find our way back to God. Scripture tells us that sin... Your sin and mine stands in the way between God and ourselves. God cannot stand sin. And so something had to be done to solve that problem. And the solution was the baby in the manger. For that child would grow to be a man who would give his life up for us, paying the debt we owe for that sin. And so in this sense, the gift of myrrh foreshadows the work for which Christ has come. 
to give himself to die on the cross for you and I. And this is the critical understanding. Forgiveness. Heaven is our future when we truly believe, when we give ourselves to God. We like to speak of this in terms of asking Jesus into our heart and similarly giving our heart to God. Recognizing our need, we humbly admit that we need saving and we trust in God to rescue us. This is vastly more important than going to church or singing Christmas carols or even giving a gift to the poor at Christmas time, all of which is really good, but it's not what we're talking about here. To do all of these things and not give our heart to God, not surrender ourselves to him, is to worship the Christ the way Herod did, with an outward show and none of the inner reality. Herod was no stranger at playing the game and appearing pious and godly. Even in this account, he's the master at playing the religious game without truly giving his heart to God. He appears to be interested in Jesus. He, he knows exactly where to find the information he needs, and so he calls for the, the religious uh, teachers and the rulers of the day to ask where Christ was to be born. Apparently, he had enough information to, to understand that somewhere in their scriptures, the location of this child was, was going to be written. And so he tells them he wants to worship Jesus, but his real motive for his request comes a few verses later in the account where he gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem two years and under in an attempt to remove this threat. This part of the account suggests the third and final gift that we might bring to Jesus. When God searches our hearts this Christmas, will he find that we are simply going through the motions? We have a, a, a false sense of, of worship the way Herod had? Will he find only an outward form of interest while inside there's really no room for Christ? Or will God find there a heart in a life surrendered to him? Will he find there a heart that has been given to the king, to the Christ child? If you have not made that decision to give your heart to him, you can do that right now, right where you are. Simply admit your need before God, confess your sin and your need for Jesus' sacrifice, and give your heart to him in prayer. It's the single greatest gift that you could give him. And for those of us who've already made that decision and given our heart, we need to remember our priorities. You know, we want everything that Jesus has come to give to us. We want everything that the kingdom of God has to offer. We want to have a secure sense of God's presence. We want all our prayers to be answered. We want to feel close to Jesus. We want to flourish in the riches of God's glory. We want to surround ourselves with the blessing of God's kingdom. But in some ways, we may be unwilling to completely give up that which is most valuable to us, namely our heart. 
until we do, until we give our heart fully and completely to Christ in adoration and submission, until we make Christ our first priority, we fail to approach Jesus the way the Magi did. We've held back in some way the most important gift of all, namely the gift of ourselves. So what are you willing to give God this Christmas and in the year to come? That's an important question for us all to be asking. You know, the account of the Magi and the Christmas story is remarkable not only for what it tells us, but also for what it does not say. We've read of the approach of the Magi and the implications of their attitude toward the child But what we need to notice as well is that despite the initial excitement of the Magi or the shepherds that we read about in another account, the people of God seem to not pay a whole lot of attention to the child in the manger. At that time of his birth, it it seemed to just pass uh, without any special note or thought. They didn't bother to go up to Bethlehem. Maybe they saw the excitement in the Magi and in the shepherds as just another false alarm in their search for the Messiah. Their reaction, if anything, was just to be troubled at perhaps how their life might get disrupted by this event. And, you know, it could be that way for us too. Unless we come offering gifts for the child. We know that this child has given us the gift of love, and forgiveness, eternal life, and the promise of heaven if we choose to believe in him. What does he now seek from us? Our devotion, our praise, and our heart. What about you? What will you give the Christ child this Christmas? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have given us so much The gift of your Son, whose birth we now celebrate, was surely the greatest gift of all. Your grace and your mercy are beyond measure. We could never give as you give, but we can still surrender to you that which you desire the most. And so today we ask, help us to give you our total devotion, our highest praise, and our undivided heart. And we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.